With the national grid warning of energy shortages this winter, Liz Truss is still refusing to act. Will Tory libertarianism lead to blackouts? That is our main question of the day. Pretty significant one. Is Liz Truss's ideological dogmatism going to end up with three hours a day where we can't turn on our fridges? Um, very worrying. I think presumably us not being able to turn our fridges is somewhat unlikely, but we will be talking about all the various risks that we face throughout tonight's show. I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Stevenson. You'll recognize Gary from many a Tisky before, but this is the first time I've had you for the whole show, so I am very excited for that. And we'll be talking about the crisis in the Conservative Party more generally towards the end of the show. And we're also discussing Joe Biden and how different the politics of cannabis is in the US to the UK. The National Grid is the company that keeps the electricity flowing in England, Scotland and Wales. It's their job to make sure that supply meets customer demand. But in a new report, they've warned that the UK could face rolling blackouts this winter. That would mean households in different parts of the country experiencing a series of three-hour periods without electricity and with only a day's advance warning. It's what they call, quote, the worst-case scenario. And it would unfold if two things happened. Vladimir Putin cuts off gas supplies to Europe and Britain faces a cold snap. But even the best case scenario modelled by the national grid in which supply continues to meet demand will still be reliant on European electricity. The Times reports this. National grid's base case remains that Britain will have an adequate margin between supply and demand to keep the lights on this winter comparable to previous winters. That's assuming that electricity imports from Europe are available at times when we need them to meet demand. So Britain can import power through subsea cables from France, Belgium, the Netherlands and Norway. It also assumes that there is no disruption to gas supplies. Now, of course, it is possible there will be no disruption of supplies from Europe, but it's far from guaranteed. Europe in general is more reliant on Russian gas than the UK. And if there's a cold winter on the continent, they might suffer shortages of their own. Indeed, it's because of this risk that the EU has just agreed that each of its countries will impose measures to reduce consumer demand this winter. In a statement, the Council of the European Union said this, The Council agreed to a voluntary overall reduction target of 10% of gross electricity consumption and a mandatory reduction target of 5% of the electricity consumption in peak hours. Member states will identify 10% of their peak hours between 1st of December 2022 and the 31st of March 2023, during which they will reduce the demand. Member states will be free to choose the appropriate measures to reduce consumption for both targets in this period. So, what happens if the Europeans do restrict exports? Well, then we move to National Grid's second scenario. According to that one, National Grid would probably need to deploy its last resort measures firing up free old coal plants that have been saved from closure and deploying a new scheme called the, quote, demand flexibility service that would pay businesses or households with smart meters to use less at peak times if supplies are scarce. Households could be paid for changing the time they use energy, such as putting washing machines on at lunchtime instead of later. National Grid believes these measures will be effective. Pleases me because I work in the evening, so I do normally put my washing machine on at lunchtime. So I hope this comes into force, although I'm not wishing for energy shortages. A demand flexibility service would be a smart move. At the moment, demand for energy comes in peaks and troughs, and severe shortages are more likely when we're all turning on our appliances at the same time, especially if that's also a time when the wind isn't blowing. 
but it might be risky to totally rely on the scheme. It doesn't yet exist. The energy retailers are showing resistance, and it's not been tested whether consumers would respond to differential energy pricing over the course of a day. Those are significant uncertainties. And worryingly, if the service doesn't come together, then the national grid will, quote, need to interrupt supply to some customers for limited periods of time in a managed and controlled manner. That means blackouts to you and me. Gary, you used to work in the markets, you used to bet on, on currencies, what stocks would go up, what stocks would go down. What do your powers of prediction tell you about whether or not we will face blackouts this winter? I think at the moment, you'd probably need to ask a weather forecaster that. It looks like it depends on basically how cold the winter's going to be. Uh, if there's a cold winter, it, it looks like it very much could happen. I think for me, what this highlights is the incredible naivety of the government's plan, which looks like it's focused much more on messaging than actually whether it's going to work, right? Because they said, we're going to fix the price. And you're looking at that and you're thinking, that's great. We're going to fix the price. Fantastic. But the truth is, there is less energy, all right? If there's less energy, then somebody has to use less energy. So even if you fix the price, somebody's energy consumption is going to go down. Now, what a sensible government would be doing would be looking at the country and saying, which kinds of energy can we save on? Because if you use the current system of just allowing the price to increase a bit, what will happen is poorer families will respond to that and they'll have to reduce their energy consumption. If all you do is fix the price, you're not at all going to reduce energy consumption of the rich. And that means inevitably energy consumption of the poor will go down. And so in that scenario, why would it be taken from poorer families before richer families? Because, uh, you know, if the, if the price cap is there, it seems to me that it's not going to be the price mechanism that's rationing gas this winter. It's just going to be either we have it and everyone gets to use it or we don't and no one gets to use it. I, I, is there not a sort of egalitarian streak in the situation we found ourselves in? We're not letting the price mechanism sort of depress supply. Although I should say, you know, electricity bills and energy bills are still twice what they were last year. So I'm sure people will be using less this winter anyway. But you, you seem to think if the shit hits the fan, then it will be the poor that suffer this time around. What's your, can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? You've hit the nail on the head already, right? Prices have gone up a lot, okay? Look, there is less energy. So it is a cold, hard fact that someone is going to use less energy. Okay, in a completely capitalist system, the way that works is the price goes up. Well, who responds to energy prices going up? Well, energy prices are a tiny percent of the expenditures of rich people. So they don't really care that much if energy prices go up. But energy prices are a massive expense for ordinary families. So when the prices go up, it is ordinary families, because they have less money and are more respondent to price changes, that respond by reducing their consumption. Now, that is not what you want, right? Because that means literally not cooking dinner in some cases, right? Not heating your home. You need to create a mechanism where you make sure that the energy reduction comes from richer families who have more consumption than they need. But if you allow it to be a partial increase in price, then it will definitely hit poorer families. And if you try and block that increase in price, all that means is you'll get blackouts. Listen, we've got less energy. We need to manage a system such that it is the richer who reduce their energy consumption. If we don't do that and we're not doing that at all, it will be poor families. Mm, that's interesting. So, so price controls are a blunt measure. Uh, as it stands, we've chosen a price level, which is not as bad as if we left it to the complete market, but it is going to restrict the amount of energy that poorer people use. It's not going to have any effect whatsoever on the amount of energy richer people use. So we should move away from just the, the completely blunt mechanism of a price control and also have some sort of direction of who is allowed to use how much energy when. I think some countries actually have sort of said they will cap the price of electricity for a certain level of use from households. But beyond that, you'll have to pay the market price. I think presumably one reason the Tories didn't want to do that is because 
they want to protect the rich people as much as they protect the poor people. The other, I suppose, more justifiable reason for doing it is that it's somewhat arbitrary how much energy you have to use because it depends on whether or not your home is insulated. And obviously, lots of people can't afford to get their homes insulated, or it just depends when your building was built. Uh, let's move on to the politics of this situation. This was Liz Truss at the Tory leadership hustings in Wembley back in August. You'll be aware in France, they talked about the possibility of energy rationing. Can you rule that out, Liz Truss? I do rule that out, yes. You rule out energy rationing. Okay. So is she sticking to that line now? The BBC caught up with Truss in Prague, where she was attending a European summit. You guaranteed during your uh, leadership campaign that there would be no electricity blackouts this winter. The national grid now says there might be. What are you going to do to make sure their prediction doesn't come true? We were working very hard on energy security. It's one of the reasons I'm here in Prague today. We have interconnectors with our European partners. Uh, we're working on more gas supplies. We're working on building out nuclear energy, building out wind energy. Say so we do have a secure supply of energy. But can you still guarantee it? Well, what we're clear about is that we do have a good supply of energy in the UK. We're in a much better position than many other countries. But of course, there's always more we can do. And that's why I'm here working with our partners, making sure we do have a secure energy supply into the future. It sounds awfully like you're backing off that guarantee. Well, what I'm saying is that we do have good energy supplies in the UK. We can get through the winter. But of course, I'm always looking for ways that we can improve the price for consumers. That's why I put in place the energy price guarantee, as well as making sure that we have as much supply as possible. That was absolutely her backing off that pledge, which I think everyone recognised was a silly pledge to begin with. She also mentioned building out nuclear and wind power. She suggested that that would be a good idea. She's right. In, in the medium term, that would seem to be sensible, but it won't get us through the next six months. And as a result of that unavoidable fact, some inside the government are reported to have made more concrete proposals about how to avoid blackouts. But Truss isn't having it. So according to a Different Times article, number 10 has rejected plans signed off by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the business secretary, for a £15 million public information campaign to encourage people to save energy. The campaign was, quote, light touch and included three central measures that could save people up to £300 a year, lowering the temperature of boilers, turning off radiators in empty rooms and advising people to turn off the heating when they go out. So why has Truss binned this pretty sensible idea? The Times explains, Truss is said to be, quote, ideologically opposed to a public information campaign this winter amid concerns that it would be too interventionist. The Prime Minister said in her party conference speech that she would not tell people what to do. Rather than a new public information campaign, the government is looking at, quote, signposting existing guidance. One government source said that the campaign, which would have been framed around saving money, was a, quote, no-brainer. Adding, quote, it's a stupid decision. The campaign was entirely practical. It was about saving people money. It wasn't about lecturing them. So the idea of just merely giving us new information about how we might save energy over winter is interventionist. Now, seems a bit far-fetched. Climate Minister Graham Stewart tried to explain the logic to Sky News. So even though we get warnings from the national grid, albeit in the worst case scenario that there could be planned blackouts, you still don't think it's worth telling people how they might be able to save energy, which incidentally will save them money too? No, you're absolutely right, Anna. The, the, when, what they've tried to get is if there were such a scenario, it would come at a, at a very sharp point. So the fact that somebody hadn't, um, you know, had 
reduce their energy usage a week before or even a day before uh, you get to a peak wouldn't really make any difference um, to the to the security of supply. So that's that's why it's. I, I know it looks like why well, it's obvious. Why don't you go out and tell everyone to uh, use less energy? Uh, we think that we've got a pretty um, we've got a diverse, strong supply, and in all the central scenarios, um, we're going to be fine. But we plan for everything and. We want to get that, you know, I'm really grateful for you focusing on it today to get those messages out to people. That was about as unclear as one can get. Impressive in its own way. For an example of crystal clarity, though, on the issue, let's see what Nicola Sturgeon had to say about how Scotland would approach the crisis. We have various uh, ways in which we try to communicate with the public around energy and other things. But can I just be clear here? I, I support Scottish independence and the Scottish government having all of these responsibilities. But energy is a reserved matter. Energy supplies are a reserved matter. We will communicate carefully um, and responsibly to the Scottish people uh, as we advise them over the winter. We shouldn't be in this position, though. The National Grid helpfully, I think, issued its different scenarios yesterday. The the best central scenario is that supply will de- meet demand over the winter. But from a Scottish perspective, to take a step back from this, we are a net exporter of electricity. We already generate sufficient renewables to cover almost 100% of our electricity use. We've got vast renewable potential. And yet we're in this position because we are part of a GB grid and are reliant on a, a UK government to take decisions around this of having soaring energy prices and uh, diminishing energy security. That says that there's a real problem with the way these decisions are taken right now that needs to be fixed. So you're not committing to a, a communications campaign? We, we will have communications campaigns, yes. I'm, I'm simply not... You know, I don't want to sit here and say it will take a particular form, but we will communicate as we did throughout the entirety of COVID. We will communicate openly and candidly with people about the pressures that are being faced and what we are asking people to do. Generally speaking right now, not just because of these potential supply issues, but because of environmental issues because of the need to for people to reduce energy costs. We should all be thinking about energy efficiency and how we use energy responsibly. Gary, I want your take on this. The Tories now think that even giving people advice would be the nanny state and too interventionist. What do you make of it? They're focusing on this line that we're not going to have any rationing. No rationing. So I want to make it clear to the listeners now, the price has doubled. That is a form of rationing. Okay, An increase in price is a form of rationing which affects primarily poor people. Look, I'm a wealthy person. If I want to keep the heating on this winter, I can't. It's no problem, okay? They're talking about two and a half thousand pound price cap. That is not a cap. If you use more energy, you will pay more than that. And poorer families and ordinary families who are already struggling with price of everything going up, they will have to reduce their energy usage. And that is a form of rationing. You know, the price has gone up massively, which means that poorer families will have to, they don't have a choice. They don't have the money. If they don't stop using their heating, they won't be able to pay the bills, even at this cap level. So we have a form of rationing, but it's a form of rationing which affects only Poorer families. I'm a wealthy person. So Liz Truss is worth what, £8 million. I bet you she's going to have the, we- the heating on this winter. So listen, we should be, and, and it's a crying shame that we're not, focusing on reducing the energy consumption of the richest people who use more than they need. But we're not doing that, which means there is a form of rationing, which is a massive price increase, and it will be poor and ordinary families who go cold this winter because of that. How would you do that? So what would be the mechanism? Like, I'm convinced that that's a desirable outcome, but what, you know, what policy levers could one pull to, to restrict the energy consumption of the very rich? Well, it's happening in, in Europe. You know, you're seeing things like you say, where we say we start charging a lot more above a certain level of usage. 
And you're also seeing these guys moving to industry, you know. Where can we reduce industry usage, you know? Listen, I'm here in London. I bet if you go to central London, go to expensive restaurants, they're not going to be reducing their energy consumption. You know what I mean? There's forms of energy which are not necessary, you know, forms of energy usage, forms of electricity usage, which are not necessary, many, many forms of usage. And the consumers of those are, are mainly richer people. So um, really, there's a wide variety of ways you're doing it. And if you look across Europe, you'll see a lot of countries doing it. But, but we're not, which means that Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak and other multimillionaires in government will probably not reduce their consumption one bit. And um, ordinary families who can't pay the bills, well, they're not going to have a choice, are they? And that's rationing. Moving on. US President Joe Biden has issued a new executive order pardoning all people with federal convictions for possession of marijuana. As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, and educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. So today, I'm taking three steps to end this failed approach. First, I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal, offense, federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession, who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. Second, I'm calling on all governors to do the same for state marijuana possession offenses. Third, the federal government currently classifies marijuana as a Schedule I substance, the same as heroin and LSD, and more serious than fentanyl. It makes no sense. So I'm asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to initiate a process to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Even as federal and local regulations of marijuana change, important limitations on trafficking, marketing, and underage sales should stay in place. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. While the number of people in federal prison for marijuana possession is pretty low, only 150, there are thousands of people with previous convictions who will now have those overturned. There were 6,500 federal convictions in the last 30 years. As Biden said, the executive order doesn't apply to state convictions, though he is encouraging state legislatures to follow suit. Possession of marijuana is already fully legal in 19 US states and fully illegal in only six. The rest fall somewhere in between. And in many ways, Biden's order reflects a huge transformation in US public opinion when it comes to weed. In 1989, nearly 81% of the US population thought marijuana possession should be illegal. But support for legalization steadily increased and became the more popular option around 2010. Unlike many states in the US and now the federal government too, the UK still takes a tough line though. Cannabis is classified as a class B drug here and as such, any person who is caught with cannabis risks up to five years imprisonment, an unlimited fine or both. It's important to note, in practice, there are some parts of the country where the policy of police forces is not to prosecute people for possession, but there are many that still do. According to Home Office data, 15,000 people in England and Wales were prosecuted for possession of cannabis in 2018 alone. That's massive. In 2021, cannabis possession accounted for 63% of all drug offences in England and Wales. And that remains the case, even though public opinion here isn't far off that in the US. 
a 2021 YouGov poll, showed that more than half of Britons were in favour of legalising cannabis, with nearly two-thirds of people under 50 coming out in support of it. But we are still criminalising people who smoke it, and just like in the United States, the criminalisation of cannabis in the UK is a matter of racial justice. This chart is a little hard to make out, but it's important. Despite making up 85% of the population, white people only make up around 45% of prosecutions for cannabis possession. Compare that to black people who account for less than 4% of the population, yet they make up around 20% of prosecutions for cannabis possession. That's despite the fact that in 2018, 9% of white people reported using cannabis as opposed to only 4.7% of black people. So what have our politicians said about the clear case for decriminalisation in the UK? Here's Keir Starmer speaking to Sophie Ridge last year. There's a case for decriminalising cannabis possession. I've never subscribed to that view. uh, When I was Director of uh, Public Prosecutions, I prosecuted many, many cases, or my team did, uh, involving drugs and drug gangs and the criminality that sits behind. Um, And it causes huge um, issues uh, um, to vulnerable people across the country. So I've never gone down that route. Um, There were some initiatives in some parts of the country where cautions were given for low-level crimes. I think there may be something in that. But in principle, I've seen too too much of the damage that sits behind drugs um, for uh, me to go down that route. So the current policy you think is roughly right? Well, it's roughly right. Of course, you know, um, there's always room for a grown-up debate about exactly how we deal with these cases. But what sits behind uh, drugs is the criminality, the gangs, and, you know... uh, If I look in my own constituency at some of the issues in relation to knife crime, which is blighting the lives of young people, sitting just behind that are county lines and drug running. And that's the kind of impact it has on our society. What sits behind drugs is criminality and crime. That's probably the case because it's criminalised. You know, you you could... (laughs) If weed was legalised, then you wouldn't have people doing county lines selling weed, would you? Because it wouldn't make any sense. The business prospect wouldn't, wouldn't add up. When it comes to the Conservatives, we know that Liz Truss campaigned to legalise cannabis while she was a Lib Dem, but it's pretty clear she no longer holds that view. Just one day after taking over as Prime Minister, Truss stopped Bermuda from legalising cannabis. The I newspaper reports this. Officials in the self-governing British territory were informed that a cannabis licensing bill that would legalise the use and sale of cannabis will not be permitted to become law. Bermuda's UK-appointed governor, civil servant Rena Lalji, typically gives assent to laws on behalf of the Queen, usually serving as little more than a rubber stamp for legislation. But in a statement on Tuesday, she said, quote, I have now received an instruction issued to me on Her Majesty's behalf not to assent to the bill as drafted. The statement added that, quote, the Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Affairs concluded that the bill, as currently drafted, is not consistent with obligations held by the UK and Bermuda under international anti-drugs conventions dating back to 1961. It is thought the decision was down to Ms. Truss herself. So not only is Britain, you know, pretty regressive when it comes to cannabis laws, we are now imposing those those regressive laws on other countries or stopping other countries from moving away from them. Uh, Gary, I want your take on this, both, I suppose, on the general issue of of, of cannabis legalisation, but also why is there this huge sort of breach between the politics of this in the United States and the politics of this here? It's a bit of a personal one for me. You know, when I was 16 years old, I got expelled from school for a cannabis offence. And, um, you know, at the time, you know, there was talk about could it go to the police, but it not go to the police. And in the end, there was like, it never went to the police. And 
I often think, you know, if that one decision had been made, you know, I would never have had my career. I would never probably have achieved what I've achieved. I never would probably be on this show now. So I think on the one hand, you know, I've come from quite a poor background and I've, I've seen a lot of friends who, who've used cannabis and I've, I've seen the damage that it can do. But then criminalization, you know, it can destroy people's lives. You know, if, if you get this one thing on the criminal record, then it can take things out forever. Why are things different in the US? Um, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think, I mean, I suppose we have a conservative government here that is largely voted for by older people who I expect maybe have a different take on it. But um, I mean, it's, it's for political reasons, I guess. Why do you think it's different in the US? Well, there's a sort of political science explanation. And it's quite interesting that in the United States, the states move much faster than the national government. And also, many of the states which did legalize cannabis, it was done via referendum. So just as in the UK, in the United States, it used to be the case that both political parties were against drug deregulation and in fact would compete over who's the toughest on, on drugs. That was seen as the center ground. And it was only when you got these sort of bottom-up ballots, you know, if you get enough signatures, you can put a ballot on, on a statewide referendum where they sort of separated the question from party politics and then the sort of majority got to speak and say, actually, no, we want to legalize this. And I think, you know, I haven't quite worked out why it is, but when it's left to political parties in a first-past-the-post system, both of them seem to think this is an issue that's going to lose them more votes and it will gain them, even though, on the whole, it's a popular policy. So I think it must be something about what the swing voters in target constituencies think in, in first-past-the-post places. And I think if it weren't for those referendums in the United States, it, it would be unlikely that we would see Joe Biden saying something like this. And I suppose also it's, it, it's in part the federal system, right? Because it was those liberal states that sort of pioneered the legalization of cannabis. And then Joe Biden quite explicitly says we shouldn't have people in prison for something which is legal in California. So once one state has sort of made that move, then the others follow. Because it's just so logical. I don't think many people you know, say, oh, look at California, it's gone terrible. We couldn't possibly legalize it in the rest of the country. So it's, mm. I think there's something about political parties in two-party systems where they can't back decriminalization until you get a bottom-up movement. Now that sounds, you know, I'm, I'm not to say that would be the only possible way to get it, but I think that's one difference between here and the United States. Let's go to our next story. We've all heard it a bunch of times now. Senior Tories are challenged on having tanked the economy and they respond by blaming Vladimir Putin. And this week, Nadim Zahawi tried a similar manoeuvre up against Piers Morgan on BBC Question Time. It backfired. What I haven't heard from anybody at senior level in this party in the last 10 days is one word, sorry. Sorry to the country for what you have put the country through. You want to say it? So, Piers, you said, you said that... Uh, one word. You said, no, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Liz said, I've listened and I get it, which is why 95% of her economic policy, of her growth plan, she wanted to protect and will deliver, right? The stuff we've just talked about. But are you sorry about taxes, the damage that's uh, been done? And, and, the, and the 5% that was damaging, yeah. she cut. And as Wilfred said, you cut and you move forward. Today, You've got 24 well, months of damage. But Piers, now hold a second. Hold I think the public I'm going to tell you right apology. now, if you give me a chance, sure. what, ask yourself this question. What would Vlad Vladimir Putin want us to do? He wants to be divided. Right now, because oh, he's please. using energy. Oh, come on. Because he's using come on, energy. Come on. Oh, come on. You can't say sorry because Vladimir Putin may not like no, it. I Nadine, said to people, you. Nadine, people are laughing. Well, hold on a second. That, hold on a second. Know, I, I just want to point that right. out. Really? Do you not believe that Vladimir Putin is using energy, which is where the inflation is coming from, where 
countries around the world are having to raise what interest does, rates. Indeed, with respect, what does right? this have to do with a simple apology to the I British just people to, I just for, the, to for the train wreck that has happened in I the just, last 10 days? I just said to you, Liz, in her conference, we said, I get it. And I and I Are changed, you sorry? I changed the policy. Are of you course, sorry? Of course I'm sorry. Thank Absolutely. you. No, I mean, we've heard before, you know, Politicians asked, why have interest rates risen? Why is the pound falling? Why is the cost of government borrowing increasing? And they say, look, this is all because of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Yes, that has increased oil and gas prices. That is undeniable. And then what people say is, yeah, but this all happened on that particular Friday when you did that mini budget. So the argument has some validity, but it completely falls down when it comes to the timing. What Nadim Zahawi said there is just... That's Alice in Wonderland stuff. You say, I can't say sorry because what Vladimir Putin wants is division. And if I were to say sorry, that would be evidence of division. I mean, within 30 seconds, he did go on to say sorry. So he's you know, not really following his own rules. But I mean, that was just completely bizarre. And it was, I suppose, refreshing to see that, I mean, he was completely just, the whole room laughed. You know, everyone on the panel laughed. The whole room laughed. I can't say sorry because Vladimir Putin wants division. Like, wow. Gary, do you think they're going to stop doing this? Like they keep, they keep going on telly. Whenever they're asked anything about the economy, whenever they're asked anything about interest rates, they say, oh, no, 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 it's Vladimir Putin. And people say, yeah, but your mini budget was on Friday and it all changed on Friday. Is anyone buying this? What, what, what do you think people, what do you think traders think when they see them saying this? You know, I did a video right at the beginning of the Ukraine war saying that this war is going to be a disaster for this country. Because it is going to end up being completely blamed for the massive cost of living crisis and inflationary crisis that, that we're going into. Now, I put a video out at the very beginning of COVID saying when lockdowns are finished, you are going to see a massive crisis of inflation, of inequality, of cost of living. Because during COVID, the government gave £600 billion to the richest people in the country. Now, that is £12,000 per adult, right? So if we were to take that back from them, we could give £12,000 to every adult in the country. Imagine the government took £12,000 from every adult and gave it to the rich. What do you think would happen? Well, that happened during COVID. And I was screaming, this is going to cause a collapse in the standard of living of ordinary British families. And we would have seen that and we would have had a chance to push back and say, listen, let's not accept this. Let's tax the rich. Let's take the money back. But as soon as that war happened, you could see the government is going to completely blame that war. It's going to completely blame Putin. And that is going to kill our chances of changing, of reversing that massive increase in inequality during COVID. So it's devastating, to be honest. It's devastating because if it was not for this war, and listen, I'm not at all pretending the worst thing, the worst people affected by this war are the people in this country. But if it were not for that war, we could reverse this economic damage by taking that enormous amount of money back from the richest individuals in the country. But because of that, it's completely killed our chances of doing that, which has basically guaranteed a permanent collapse in living standards. And they're going to keep rolling on this. And I cannot make this point strongly enough, okay? The economic pain that you are feeling as an ordinary family is not being caused by Vladimir Putin. We have seen the biggest and fastest ever increase in inequality in the history of this country in the last three years. Of course, it is going to be followed by a massive decrease in standard of living for ordinary families, which I would like to hasten, is accompanied by the biggest and fastest ever increase in wealth and standard of living for the rich. So, um, I really want to make it clear to people what is happening now to your standard of life, to your cost of living. It's not Vladimir Putin. Look what's happening to house prices and rents. That's not Vladimir Putin's family living in them houses. That is happening because the richest have never gotten as rich 
as they have in the last three years as quickly. And that is why your standard of living is hurting. Can I get you to expand a little bit? Because I think this point is is really important. And the first time you explained it to me, I no, I, I need a few things sort of laid out. Because people might think, you're saying the government gave all this money to rich people and didn't give any money to poor people. Now, what the immediate response, I think, from many people will be, well, furlough did actually go to you know, lots of ordinary people. The £20 universal yeah. credit uplift, that did go to ordinary people. So what are you talking about that this money was given to the rich? And why did, during COVID, the rich get richer and the poor not get richer or get poorer relative to the rich when actually a lot of those government programs were targeted or at least available to people at the lower end of the income spectrum. Can you sort of explain how, how that works? Yeah, of course. That's an excellent question. It's very important. If people want a full explanation, there's a video on my YouTube channel, the first and the biggest video on there, which people can go and watch. But I'll try and explain it rapidly now, okay? So when at the beginning of COVID, you could see the government give, we're going to give out hundreds of billions of pounds. I was sitting there thinking, who is going to get this money? Where's the money going to end up? Because if you consider the situation of furloughed worker, Yes, they're receiving a lot of money from the government, but they're not ending up richer than they were before COVID, right? Because it's simply replacing their ordinary wages. So who actually ends up with the money? So what I did was I followed this money through the system, right? Okay, ordinary workers are not getting richer because they're not receiving their wages. So who's getting the wages? Okay, well, the companies have the wages. But during COVID, companies didn't get richer either because they were totally shut down. The people who actually had the wages were the customers who were no longer going to the companies, right? But the key is, it's not all customers, right? So if you're an ordinary family, the vast majority of your spending is rent, mortgage, food, bills. You still had those expenditures during COVID. But if you're a very, very wealthy person, most of your expenditures are luxuries, like luxury holidays, luxury restaurants, luxury bars, luxury hotels. That stuff was all closed down during COVID. Now, when the government jumped in to replace those incomes, that made things look fine from the perspective of ordinary people. But they got the incomes they used it to pay their bills. It went to the owners of the assets who were the rich, who simply weren't spending for two whole years, which meant there was a 600 billion flow of cash from the government to ordinary workers to the rich who kept it. And I was screaming at the beginning of COVID, listen, we're not going to go back to normal. We're going to go back to a normal where the average rich person is sitting on an extra 100, 200 grand cash in their bank. That's not a normal economy. It's inevitable. You're going to see a massive increase in inequality and inflation for ordinary people. And it's so important people understand this. And it's the thing I've been trying to get through to people. Look, if the government gives you £1,000 and the rich £100,000, you will get poorer because they will use that money to buy the assets that you need, food, energy, housing, healthcare. And that is what happened during COVID. We had the biggest and fastest ever increase in inequality in the history of the country. And people need to understand that. If inequality gets bigger, they get richer, you get poorer, and your standard of life gets worse. That's really important. I suppose the idea is during the COVID pandemic, it was the rich who were able to store up, you know, huge piles of cash, their savings massively expanded. Obviously, poor people, you know, their savings didn't expand because they just got enough money that they could pay their rent and, and, and buy food. And so now after COVID, you've got these huge piles of cash that the rich have sort of managed to acquire or build up over the past two years. Now they're all spending it. And obviously, if they're all spending it. That causes inflation. It means that we're competing with very wealthy people for all of these goods. And I think you're exactly right that that is sort of an underdiscussed cause of the inflation that we are facing, underdiscussed for obvious reasons, because the implication of your analysis is we should massively tax the rich, and that is the way to bring down inflation, right? Not to in increase interest rates and make some people unemployed, which is the sort of mainstream neoclassical way to do it. 
We're going to move back to this issue of Putin because as that question time clip showed, the Putin-based excuses for Tory failure are beginning to wear thin. They're always wearing thin, to be honest. But some appear to be hoping that if Putin upped the ante in Ukraine, that could still save the Conservatives. Paul Goodman is editor of Conservative Home. This is what he told Newsnight when asked about Liz Truss's authority. Let's never forget that tomorrow looks different from today. So I'm going to enter the proviso at the start that if Vladimir Putin explodes a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine before Christmas, the entire domestic political conversation will change. When you're, when you're sort of silver lining, oh, it, this trust might be extraordinarily unpopular at the moment. People might have hated our mini budget that crashed the pound. But, um, you know, if, if Vladimir Putin was to use nuclear weapons, then maybe people would change their minds. <laughs> you know, if, if your election strategy for 2024 involves between now and then, there being some sort of nuclear catastrophe, um, it's potentially time to quit. Very briefly, Gary, do you agree with the editor of Conservative Home if Putin uses nuclear weapons? Will people forgive Liz Truss? I think people probably have other things on their mind if that happens. <laughs> Listen, the problem we have here is that the economy is in a terrible state and it's going to get worse and worse. The Conservatives need something, right? They tried to just like spaff a load of money at the rich. That was obviously rejected. They need something else to keep popularity. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that you're likely to get, you know. They're going to go on about Ukraine a hell of a lot. They're going to talk about asylum seekers and refugees. They're going to drive up hatred wherever they can. I think people just need to remember, we've seen the largest and fastest ever increase in millionaire and billionaire wealth. You know, this whole, this um, energy package is going to cost 150 billion, okay? The Times Rich list, 250 individuals. Increased wealth by 106 billion in the first year of COVID, just 250 individuals. If we looked at them, we could fix this. If we spend all our time talking about Putin, we're not going to. Let's move on. BBC Question Time is always more entertaining when the Tories are in a crisis. And this week was no exception. Take a look at Piers Morgan, Brian Cox, and Lisa Nandy laying into the government. I think she's done. I, I think if you come in at this stage with two years to an election, with the polling as catastrophic as it is, and it's a direct result of the very first thing that you do for the country, and you play casino politics with the nation's economy, and you put it all on red and it comes up black, and you then have to start rewinding and reversing half of your strategy, and there's a run on the pound, the Bank of England has to intervene and spend billions of pounds bailing out pension funds, interest rates start soaring, mortgages start soaring, I'm not sure how she has the brass neck to stay on the job. Certainly what's been going on at the Tory party conference has been an absolute fiasco. You know, and you, we've seen it. We've all witnessed it. We've witnessed it on a daily basis. And uh, she's the wrong person for the job. I, I, it's what I believe. I just do not think she is the right person for the job. And I also don't trust her. I don't trust her. There's something about her that I just simply do not trust. So... I ain't a fan. A handful of Tory MPs and Tory party members chose her. She didn't let on at all that this is what she was planning to do. And then she's announced a huge package of unfunded borrowing to target help to the wealthiest at a time when most people are struggling and she's crashed the economy. I don't really give a stuff what the future of Liz Truss is, but I really do care what the future of 1.8 million people who are about to come off fixed-term mortgages, who are going to see their mortgage payments rise by £500 a month, wiping out any of the help on energy costs, I really do care what's going to happen to them. 
Now, you might say, you know, free people laying into the government on a question time panel, not entirely unusual. I think what was notable there, though, is nothing that any of them said. I don't think anyone reasonable can disagree with. I think my favorite bit, just because it was kind of entertaining, Brian Cox saying, you know, just don't trust her. Just don't like her. Then it pans to the audience. I was like, yeah, I don't like her. I don't trust her, actually. I, I, I don't think she's going to be particularly pleased or her PR people will be pleased watching that. There was a defender of the government on the panel, obviously, other than Nadim Zahawi, and it was Wilfred Emmanuel Jones. He's a businessman, farmer, and former Tory candidate. Early on in the show, he suggested Liz Truss should be forgiven for making mistakes. This was the response from an audience member. Just to go back to your point about making mistakes. I was speaking to my apprentice today about making mistakes. It's an opportunity to learn. I get that. Some positions and roles, you don't get that opportunity. If you're flying a pain, you can't make a mistake. If you're a surgeon, you can't make a mistake. She's the prime minister. She should make a mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is absolutely impossible to say that as a human being, whatever you do, you can't make mistakes. It's just, it's, it's just impossible to even think that. It's just that in how we evolve, how we develop is learning by our mistakes. There is no human being alive that can actually say they've never made a mistake. And to have that expectation of somebody is just a ridiculous expectation. But what if I just say we're not at a time where we can afford these kind of mistakes. We're in a very crucial position. We simply can't afford these kind of mistakes. And they're being made time and time and time again. And it's got to stop. We need some some vision. We have no vision. This party has absolutely no vision. (laughs) You could um, really see the Logan Roy coming out there. I was always expecting him to sort of hit Jeremy Strong around the head. With Jeremy Strong not on the panel, he is a character from Succession. I mean, I think, you know, what was said... um, on the panel there, I was about to call him Logan Roy, Brian Cox, had to remind myself of his real name. What he said was obviously correct. You know, making mistakes early on in your career is fine. Making mistakes late in your career is fine. But if you have just become prime minister, you know, you, you, you have just persuaded your party to make you literally the most important person in the country, then if the first thing you do crashes the pound, ups everyone's mortgages, and increases the cost of, of, of government debt by a significant degree, then that's not just any mistake. It's not any job. It's not just any mistake. The one thing you, the one job you have to do is to, you know, ensure the security of the country. And what have you done? You've crashed the economy in the first announcement you've made. Now, other than sort of like a, a Trumpian level of sort of accidentally giving away the nuclear codes, this is pretty high up on mistakes you're not supposed to make. I mean, the other thing to say about it is, Yes, you might make mistakes in any job, especially sort of high-pressure jobs, but I'm going to be more forgiving of you if what you were trying to do was virtuous. So if you were really, really trying to implement a policy that would help the vast majority of people and you misjudged what the reaction of the markets would be or you misjudged what the reaction of you know, any kind of interest group in the country would be, fine. At least you were trying to do something good. Obviously, I prefer you not to make those mistakes. But the mistake that Liz Truss made was in misjudging the attitude that the market would have to her policy of arbitrarily giving a huge bonus to wealthy people. It wasn't she was trying to do something virtuous and made a mistake in how to achieve that thing. No, she was trying to slip in this huge giveaway for the wealthy. And I I think the logic of them was, we're giving this much money to people with this gas freeze. 
why are we giving so much money to ordinary people if we can't give a few billion just to the very rich? I, I think that was their logic. And they got caught out. And to say, oh, everyone makes mistakes. She made a mistake, but she made a mistake trying to do something which was in and of itself, even if it was a success, quite ugly, giving away stuff to the rich in a cost of living crisis. Finally, this was Nadim Zahawi's attempt to defend his government. He's up against Labour's Lisa Nandy. Of course, I take uh, collective responsibility uh, for what we do, judge us by uh, what we will deliver. Um, 12 years. Well, no, hold on a second. She's at been least, a present feature of every are, cabinet. Least, Cameron, least, May, Johnson, least, least and now. At least we are a pro-gross cabinet. You are part Presiding of the anti-gross... 12, 12, 12 years. Growth coalition. 12 years of low right. growth and you, high taxes. You, you want to put taxes up, Lisa. Tell us which taxes you would cut. At least we are putting we've, a we've plan forward it, where we get voted, freeze. We voted against your tax rises tax on working people. I'll tell you the answer. So that people don't invest. I don't think you, know, you, you talk about wanting corporation tax to be frozen at 19%. That means people will invest in this country confidently. That's Cutting tax for 31 million people, that's a good thing. Okay. What's your tax? You don't have one. You asked you ask, you ask me the answer. I'll tell you the answer. That those who have the broadest shoulders should bear the greatest burden. It is unconscionable that when oil and gas producers are making record profits, you're making working people pay. Not good enough. And if you, okay, cared, okay. If you cared, if you cared no, about tax receipts, tax take, rather than tax rate, you would actually what, have a, a tax-cutting plan. Lisa Nandy is right. That jibe that Labour are part of an anti-growth coalition isn't persuasive when we live through more than a decade of the Tories in power. And the ridiculousness of the claim that the Tories are pro-growth can be shown in one simple chart. So this is from the blog of Oxford economics professor Simon Wren-Lewis. It shows real weekly wages over time. They increased from around £400 in the year 2000 to over £470 in 2008. This is per week. They then leveled off after the financial crisis, but started plummeting once the Tories came to power. So we had a decade of wage stagnation. They then went on to rise in 2021, but they're tanking again. Gary, from your perspective, what claim do the Tories have to be the party of economic growth? Well, I mean, if you look at the evidence, it's pretty clear the last 12 years have been very low growth, very low investment. They haven't seen an increase in living standards for ordinary people. I think what it shows for me is, is, the, is the power of stories and the power of messaging, right? You know, they thought they could get away with giving a massive tax cut to the rich on the basis that they could tell us it grows the economy. And, um, you know, when I hear that, I look at myself and I say, well, I haven't explained well enough to people that if they give a ton of money to the rich, that is going to make you poorer. You know, if you want a strong economy, you need pounds and pence in the pockets of ordinary people. You know, what we're seeing now, or the rich are getting richer and richer, is Businesses are closing down, pubs are closing down because ordinary people don't have any money. But we haven't made that economic case, that economic story well enough that a strong economy involves getting money into the pockets of ordinary families. And, um, you know, trust is going to go and the conservatives will probably lose. But unless we can make that story that getting money to ordinary families strengthens the economy, our economy won't get better because we need to make that case for redistribution so that people support it. You know, obviously, that that's a, a long-term project of yours. But sort of, I suppose, to say that in a pithy way, like, wh why why is it that it, it's, it's only when you give money to ordinary people that you get growth, not when you give it to the rich? Is it because they, they will spend the money on goods and services in their communities, whereas the rich will just pump it into assets? Is that sort of the fundamental argument, or am I oversimplifying? Yeah, look, 
No, no, it's all right. I've got a video coming out exactly on this on Sunday. But look, basically, there's this idea that, first of all, what is true is that the rich save a much higher percentage of their income than ordinary people. So then that can lead the sort of lazy assumption that, well, if they save more, then if you give them more money, we'll have more investment. But that investment is not new wind farms. It's not new factories. That investment is very often buying your mum's house. Look, you know, I come from a poor background and the kids from where I'm from, their mums had houses that are being bought by the rich because the rich have so much money. Listen, you need to understand, you give money to the rich, they do not drive the economy. They buy the assets that your family needs. You give money to ordinary families, they will spend it, which drives everybody's wages up. You know, this is the story which we need to be understanding and telling each other, because if we don't do something about growing inequality, things are only going to get worse and worse from here. Finally, I just want to get your response on the last thing that Deem Sahawi said, which is that Labour are too concerned with the tax rate and not concerned enough with the tax take. And the implication there is that what the Conservatives are doing is they're cutting taxes so that they will get more taxes in the long run, either because, you know, that means people are more willing to pay tax, you know, they, they, they hide it less, or because I think that the basis of the argument is it will bring about so much growth that even with a lower tax rate, you end up with a higher tax take. Can I get you to respond to that? If you cut taxes on the rich, then the rich will accumulate a ton of money. In the last three years, the rich accumulated £600 billion. What did it do for ordinary people? Pushed house prices up, pushed rents up, pushed inflation up. It meant that ordinary people can't afford to heat their homes, can't afford to feed their kids in many situations. Look, money is not food. Money is not energy. Money is not healthcare. Money is not housing. Okay? Money is not real resources. Money is the asset that we use to determine the distribution of real resources. If we give a ton of money to the rich, they will get more real resources and you will get less. You need to start understanding there's only a limited amount of stuff. And if you give all of it to the rich, as well as all, the, as, well as all of our wealth and all of our assets, ordinary families will be poor. You know, and I used to work in a city stacking up cash for these people. They're making it, you know, and if you don't protect it, you're going to lose it. So, you know, you need to understand that, listen, giving them money is not in your best interest. You need the houses for your family. You know, keep your money, keep your wealth for yourself, your family, your community. Don't give it all to the rich, please. Because if you keep doing that, then you're seeing right now what happens to the economy. Um, let's wrap up there. Um, thanks for joining me tonight. And um, I'm delighted to say, if you want to hear more from Gary, um, you're appearing on our channel again this weekend. You did an interview with Aaron Bastani. Can you give a sense of what our viewers can expect from that? Yeah, we spoke about a lot of stuff. We spoke about, so people who don't know, I worked in the city for a long time. I was one of Citibank's top traders in the world for a bit. We spoke about how I got that job, um, what it was like, how I became so successful in the job, which was largely by betting that our economy would collapse in the long term. Um, and basically how to fix the economy. Because, you know, I look at the economy now as somebody whose job is to make bets on it. And I see an economy that's going to get worse and worse. And, you know, I don't want that. Aaron doesn't want that. You don't want that. I'm sure the people listening don't want that. So we talk a lot about what needs to be done to prevent this long-term economic disaster from, from getting worse and worse. So I hope people will uh, check it out and I hope people enjoy it. That will be this Sunday at 7pm on our YouTube channel. So make sure you come back for that. For now, thank you so much to Gary Stevenson and thank you for watching. And we'll be back on Monday at 7pm. You've been watching Tiski Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.